Second grade or younger, I'll invite you to make your way down to Children's Church right now. Second grade and younger, as well as teachers. You can head on down, and if you're third to seventh grade and still with us and don't have your treasure seeker binder yet, you can do that. You're in the back there, right by Mr. Kaler, underneath the clock. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that parable is going to be acted out right now. He can't help but be acted out. Every time we open our Bibles, every quiet time, every Bible study, every sermon, every radio preacher, every TV preacher, every listener, the parable is acted out. And the odds aren't good. Three out of four soils, there's no fruit. And that stands to reason, Lord. You said that broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many are on it, and it is easy. Few are those on the path to eternal life, and it's hard. But I pray on the other side of that, I pray that you would help us to see the happy alongside the heart, the joy in the journey. And may you create in this sanctuary Luke 8.15 soil. Hearts that hearing the word hold it fast, honestly, and bear fruit with patience. Lord, it's no mistake, with long suffering. Come now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon is entitled, The Heart of the Matter is the Heart is the Matter. The Role of Desire in the Life of the Soul. Uh, the subtitle's mine, but the main title is not. Uh, the phrase, the heart of the matter is the heart is the matter, is one that I'm borrowing. I'm borrowing it from hip-hop artist Timothy Brindle. And if I had magic powers and unlimited resources, I would snap my finger and Timothy Brindle's last two CDs would automatically appear in each of your iTunes accounts. That's what I would do if I had magic powers. Along with a complete PDF file of his lyrics. Timothy Brindle is a recording artist for Lamp Mode Records. His last two CDs, uh, 2005's Killing Sin and then a CD called The Restoration, which appeared not quite two years ago, those two CDs are required listening in the Abernethy household. Any given morning, we're getting ready for school, if you stood on our lawn and put a hand to your ear, you would likely hear the deep, grungy backbeat, the the boom bap of this Christian lyrical theologian. That is what the best of Christian hip-hop is, by the way. It's lyrical theology. In fact, all music is lyrical theology. The question is, what are the lyrics, and what's the theology? Uh, Probably one of the most profound tracks on the CD, The Restoration, his most recent CD is a song featuring Timothy Brindle and Shy Lin, who is another rapper, and then their pastor, Lance Lewis. Uh, The cut is called I'm the Problem. And the hook in the song goes like this. My biggest problem 
is thinking, I'm not the biggest problem. The heart of the matter is my heart is the matter. God's image in me is marred and it's shattered. I'll say that again. My biggest problem is not thinking I'm the biggest problem. You know what the heart of the matter is? My heart is the matter. God's image in me marred and shattered. The human heart is deceitful and desperately sick. But the grace of God in the gospel of Christ can change that. The human heart is deceitful and desperately sick, but the grace of God in the gospel of Christ can change that. Our current preaching series is entitled Competent to Counsel, a biblical vision for soul care in the local church. Our first week together on this topic, we learned that God's world allows us to observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. In week two, the scriptures warned us to beware the poverty of the secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Week three, we did some anthropology. That is, we sought to answer the question, like, what's a human being? I mean, not for nothing, but what is a human being? And we discovered that uh, in the Bible, a human being is a creature made in the image of God, possessing visible and invisible dimensions, utterly unique, conceived in sin and therefore under the curse of God's wrath, yet capable of experiencing redemption in Christ by God's grace. That's what a person is. And then last week, we attempted to go some distance in understanding what this message of God's grace is all about. The message that has been preached from the pulpit of this church for 71 years. That we cannot understand well enough. The gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the comprehensive rescue for the soul. Jesus is the panacea of soul care. He's the one thing That will make everything about your situation better. Let us never settle for merely preaching Christ. We said last week we must press on to counsel him. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish and because of what the gospel message is to a counselee. Now, this week we're going to get to the heart of the matter. You thought we got to the heart of the matter last week. This is the heart of the matter. I mean, why do we do what we do? What's what's wrong with us? We seethe with anger. I do. We swell with pride. We run in fear. We choke on addiction. Just choke on it. We ruin our relationships. We ruin them. Every one of them. What's going on? What's what's our major malfunction? Wouldn't you like to know? Did you know that you can know? You can. 
Over 100 years ago, the London Times issued a call for readers to offer their answer to the question, what's wrong with the world today? This is an illustration I've shared in past years. What's wrong with the world today? You ever asked that? 2015 in North America, what's wrong with this nation? Sure you have. You have. They did at the turn of last century, too. What's wrong with the world today? And as you might imagine, as the London Times asked that question, answers came in from every quarter of London, telling the paper what's wrong with the world today. But the finest answer came from the pen of Christian writer G.K. Chesterton. He knocked the ball out of the park. He wrote, his reply was brief, and it was on point. He said, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world today? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You believe that? You believe that? That's what the Bible says is wrong with us. I am. My biggest problem, and I, I got problems. I don't know if you knew that or not. I got problems. My biggest problem is when I think I'm not the biggest problem. That's my biggest problem. The heart of the matter is my heart is the matter. So we have three things that we want to see today in Scripture. We want to receive a devastating diagnosis. We want to believe in an omnicompetent and omniscient physician. And then we want to embrace an outrageously encouraging course of treatment. Those are your three blanks today. Diagnosis, physician, treatment. The human heart is deceitful and desperately sick, but the grace of God and the gospel of Christ can change that. Let's start with the first of three points today. Number one, when it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an absolutely devastating diagnosis. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an absolutely devastating diagnosis. Now, I have, I have roughly 40 scriptures that I like to touch on this morning. I don't for a second plan that you would turn to every one of them. I don't plan to turn to every one of them. That's why I've prepared here. Um, Lord willing, the audio for the sermon will be up at the website in a a day or two. And I'll tell you what, if you'd like a copy of this manuscript, just email me, and I'll give it to you later today. That way you can have it all. But all the chapter and verse references are right there in your outline in front of you. We need to begin with the devastating diagnosis. But even before we begin with the diagnosis, we've got to start with the definition. We want to figure out what a heart is. What's a heart? What does the Bible mean when it says the heart? We would be well served if we dwelt for a moment on what we're talking about when we refer to the heart. When we say the heart is the matter, we're not saying our thoughts are the matter, though that's part of the matter. When we say the heart is the matter, we're not saying our emotions are the matter or your mood is the matter, although that's part of the matter. When we say the heart is the matter, we're not even saying our behavior is the matter, although that's part of the matter. Now, when God's word says that the heart is the matter, what it means is our desires. I'll just throw some synonyms your way and you tell me which ones fit you. Our hungers, our thirsts, 
our appetites, our cravings, passions, wants, longings, ambitions, drives, delights, affections, devotions, inclinations, what we like, what makes us happy, our needs, our propensities, what we relish and and yearn for and enjoy, what we esteem and revere, what we're hot for and warm toward, what we treasure, what fills and satisfies us like no other. That's what the Bible means when it says the heart. Why do we think what we think and feel what we feel and do what we do? Because we want what we want. And if you think about that soberly for five seconds, that's devastating. That is a withering, crushing analysis of the human heart. Now, we're going to read some Bible, but we hardly need to, because this is an incontrovertible fact. This is an unassailable fact that we would not need the Bible to establish. You know that it's true, and I know that it's true. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. We learn that before the flood of Noah, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if you think that folks are any better on this side of the flood than that side of the flood, you are engaging in what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. You are deluded if you think that they're worse before the flood than we are today. Sometimes we Christians are asked about our doctrine of sin People will ask us, do you guys really believe that people are basically bad? Answer, the Bible teaches that people are basically selfish. And that's bad. Holy Scripture says that we are first about me, me. Me! And guess what? That's evil. That's evil. So when God looks on the human race and concludes that our wickedness is great and every intention and thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually, that's what Scripture means. We're supremely selfish in our orientation. A baby's heart starts discernibly beating somewhere between 21 and 28 days after conception. And that heart, as it first beats, has a sound. And it has a cadence. And the cadence is me first, me first, me first. Humans are conceived self-centered, self-seeking, self-interested, self-regarding, and self-referential beings. Them's the facts. John Flavel, the Puritan, said at the beginning of our service, we have a naughty heart. And it only gets worse the older we get. Until or unless God steps in and changes things. The heart of the matter is the heart is the matter. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus issues what is perhaps the greatest blanket condemnation of the human heart in all the Bible. The Savior himself says in Matthew 15, 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, period. According to Jesus, the derivation of all our defilement is the heart. You say, well, how, did, how do we get this way and how is it that we stay this way? Why do we stay this way? Part of the answer, though not all of the answer, part of the answer lies with us. We harden our own Hearts, the Bible says. Um, in the story of the Exodus, we read of the hardening of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Exodus 8.15, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen. Likewise, in Exodus 9.34, Scripture clearly reports, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Plain as day. And yet, Pharaoh is far from unique, right? Apart from God's grace, there's no temptation that's overtaken Pharaoh. That's not common to you and me. So the hardening of the human heart is the hardening of the human desires and longings and affections. The desire for self first. That's what the heart is. It's a desire factory that puts me on the throne of my life. Now notice, that's what the sinful heart does. It's also true, then, that the heart of the matter is also that we desire to dethrone God. Apart from the mercy of God, the human heart has an aversion to God. Left to ourselves, we avoid him. We try to. And why? Because we dislike him. We're bothered by him. We're disgusted by him. We're frosty and cold toward him. We are repulsed and nauseated and sickened by him. We hate him. You say, that's a little extreme. I, I don't hate God. Not true. In John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify to it that its works are evil. Unless God breaks off our love affair with sin, we do hate him. Jesus says in John 3, 20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. He doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Our hearts left to themselves, are full of idolatry and spiritual adultery. We have idols in our heart. You say, no, I don't. Really? Really? Answer this question. I'll put it two different ways. What do you want so bad that you will sin in order to get it? Or let's flip it around. What do you want so bad you'll sin if you don't get it? That's an idol. 
So what do we do? Well, confess that this is true. That's the place to start. Listen to the words of Timothy Brindle. Instead of making excuses and blaming when you sin, face the truth is and say, I'm the problem. My heart's sick as a leper. My biggest dilemma is the sinner is the sin in the center of me. I'm the problem. I'm stubborn and stiff-necked, loving what's wicked. The judge I don't respect because I'm the problem. And it isn't our spouses, though kids are a challenge. Their sinning is countless, but no, I'm the problem. It can't be solved by modern psychology. And no, the problem is not the economy or stopping the poverty. It's that we want to be God in our awful autonomy. It's not my health or my loss of wealth, but rather that my favorite God is self. My problem's me and my idolatry. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an absolutely devastating diagnosis. Second point today. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an omnicompetent and omnipotent physician. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an omnicompetent and omnipotent physician. Now, not to step on the last point, but this one will be controversial. Okay. It's controversial because our naughty hearts don't like it. On the one hand, we don't want this to be true. On the other hand, once you come to see this, it changes everything. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. This doctrine, point number two, has often appeared exceedingly pleasant and bright and sweet to me. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. That's what Edward said. How about you? Is is absolute sovereignty what you love to ascribe to God? You say, well, maybe. Like, how much sovereignty are we talking here? How much power over what? I'll let you know if I'm happy about that. Well, let's let God speak for God. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful, Above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart. Or, in the story of the Exodus, the one where Pharaoh is clearly described as hardening his own heart, we read not once, not twice, not three times, but ten separate times, by my count anyway, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Repeatedly. Consistently. You ask, well, that's the bad news. How do you get the heart humming? Like, the heart that's purring and revving. Answer, God. And if the heart is not running yet, guess who hasn't jump-started it yet? God. In Deuteronomy 29.4 we read, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In 1 Kings 8.58, King Solomon prays, May God not leave us or forsake us. May he incline our hearts toward him. 
First Chronicles 29, 17-19, Solomon's father David prays, I know, my God, that you test the heart. O Lord, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, direct our hearts toward you. These scriptures themselves are a temperature gauge for your soul. Do these things thrill you or threaten you? So the biblical evidence is that God knows, searches, hardens, softens, gives, tests, and directs the hearts of human beings. But that's not all. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God promises that he will undoubtedly give a new heart to many. Uh, Listen to the new covenant promise to God's people, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital S, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the new covenant. 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. And it's ratified, though, in the New Testament, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus, along with his Father, is the bearer and bestower of the Holy Spirit. Jesus walked in lockstep with the Spirit, and he gave the Spirit to to others. And Jesus, too, repeatedly knows and perceives and discerns the workings of the human heart. You want a good Bible study? Look up the word heart on, like, Bible Gateway and watch what it does through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oftentimes, it's Jesus seeing into a heart and just watching what's going on inside of it, just knowing what's there, okay? And Jesus, who knows all hearts, to whom all hearts are open, no desires are hid, Even as he calls people to believe in and follow him, he is more than aware of the fact that God is sovereign over the hearts of men. John 12, 36 and following says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though they had seen, he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. He asked, Does anyone get healed? Yes. Jesus delights to heal human hearts. He loves it. One example would be Lydia. In Acts 16, 14, where it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's a really nice gift from Luke right there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Jesus did that. The greatest spiritual doctor in the universe did that. And it's not just in the Bible. It's what we might call real life. He does it. Um, Take, for example, the conversion of St. Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine was a young man, like many men in the 21st century today, up to his eyeballs in sexual sin. That was St. Augustine. Here's how he recounts 
his conversion and his confessions. Listen to this. All at once, how sweet it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see in all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. See, Jesus did it for Lydia. He did it for Augustine. Has he done it for you? He's done it for me. And if he's done it for me and he's done it for you, you think he might do it for someone on your list of five? Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an omnicompetent and omnipotent physician. One final point today. It's encouraging. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an outrageously encouraging course of treatment. When it comes to the cure of the soul, the scriptures reveal an outrageously encouraging course of treatment. What's this course of treatment, you say? Well, reconsider the title of this morning's sermon. But play with it a little bit. The heart of the matter is the heart is the matter. Now, on one level, that's bad news. But on another level, like as they say in the NFL, like upon further review, that's the greatest news in the world. The heart is the matter? The heart is the matter? What's the course of treatment? Well, about 20 years ago, one of the most classic episodes of the weekly TV sitcom Seinfeld aired. You may remember it with fondness, as I do. The episode was called The Opposite. Jerry and George were sitting in their familiar booth at Monk's Cafe when George confesses to Jerry that every decision he's ever made has been wrong. His life, as a result, is the exact opposite of what it should be. And it's at this moment that Jerry Seinfeld tells George Costanza, you know, George, if every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Well, George takes this as an epiphany, and he begins to do the opposite. He orders the exact reverse of the lunch that he's ordered every day for the last 10 years, which is kind of weird. And then he walks up to an attractive woman sitting at the counter and says, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. And she's impressed. And he gets her number. And he starts walking on water. If every decision you've ever made has been wrong, then it stands to reason that the opposite would have to be right. And maybe we'll just tweak this for the biblical purposes. If every instinct your heart has had left to itself is wrong, the opposite would have to be right. And you could only make that move with the same heart 
or at least a renewed heart. C.S. Lewis said long ago, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine of what's meant by the offer of the holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis has never been more right. So what's the course of treatment? Well, the heart is the matter. Allow me to simply offer a sampling of scripture on this. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Remember, the heart in the Bible is the desires, the hungers, the appetite, the drive, the delight, devotion, treasure, satisfaction. God considers our desires. He considers them not too strong. They are too weak. We are far too easily pleased. Don't settle for sin. Rivet your soul on God. Jesus merely echoes this glorious news in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's incredibly good news. The first and greatest commandment in the Bible, according to Jesus, is crave God. That is the greatest commandment. Need God. Be filled with God. He finds your desires not too strong, but offensively pathetic. Junior varsity and wimpy. Perhaps you have a coffee cup at home or a t-shirt that says this one. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know this one? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your what? Your heart, your fervor, your ardor, your esteem. Esteem him. Two more scriptures, then we're done. Psalm 119, verse 32 is a gem. I remember where I was sitting in Sunday school 15 years ago when I saw this. Psalm 119, verse 32 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. A slight adjustment to some manuscripts reads, I will run in the way of your commandments for you have set my heart free. Hmm. One more. We've saved the best for last. Uh, Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611 is so beautiful. Psalm 1611 proclaims, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? That's been my experience. As we close, I thought we'd finish where we started uh, with the words of rappers Timothy Brindle and Shai Lin, who write, If I'm the problem, Christ is the solution. Praise be to God for his priceless substitution. The mountain is steep indeed. We can't climb it. But God decided to meet our deepest need. We like to dance around the truth like Alvin Ailey. But God gets down to the roots like Alex Haley. You'll have to Google that one later. I'm looking outside myself externally when all the while the fire of hell is burning in me. 
Sin's grievous and heinous deceives us and taints us. It leaves us in pain with lesions, abrasions. Now, Jesus is famous for bleeding with anguish so we can be stainless and no need to blame shift. Insincerity, whenever we're in error, it's imperative that we remember the sin bearer. So if it hurts when you see that you are your worst enemy, look to the perfect remedy who took your curse and penalty. Amen? My biggest problem is thinking I'm not the biggest problem. The heart of the matter is the heart is the matter. If you don't know Jesus this way, I just invite you to come to him. You don't have to go here. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just stay there and invite him into your heart. This is the Jesus that lives. This is the Jesus that's alive and returning and has won many of our hearts. Turn from your sin. Turn from the joy that you have been sacrificing through sin and turn toward Christ where all the help and the resources and the joy is. Be forgiven and be on your way to heaven. The human heart is deceitful and desperately sick, but the grace of God and the gospel of Christ can change that. When it comes to the cure of the soul, scriptures reveal an absolutely devastating diagnosis, an omnicompetent and omnipotent physician, and an outrageously encouraging course of treatment. Next week, the plan is to conclude the first leg of this preaching series with what I hope will be a practical and hands-on approach to biblical counseling. We're going to call the sermon Soul Care by the Book, a model for biblical counseling. So next week is, is like a pivot Sunday. It's going to be a transition between the convictions that we've been tr- trying to develop over the last month, and now we're going to begin to move into the practical realm of competencies. How do you actually roll up your sleeves and begin to counsel others within your sphere of influence? More on that next week. Right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a wonderful counselor, and your diagnosis is so deep So many refuse it. It's so searching. It's so revealing. It's so humbling. And yet the irony is, it cost us nothing. You would have been justified to squash Adam and Eve into oblivion, Lord God. And the angels would have praised you for the justice that thundered through Eden. But you've been patient, like millennia patient. And we thank you for your long suffering for us. And we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to become a curse for us. I pray that none of us would bear our curse any longer. Lift the curse, Lord, from human hearts today, sovereignly for our joy, for your glory, and for all that we might be able to impact. Lord, help us to be wild for Jesus Christ this week, bringing him into the lives of others that we love. In Jesus' name, amen.